in um, Ajahn Chah's tradition, uh, we're encouraged when we're invited to give a, a Dhamma talk, we're encouraged to kind of trust the heart and trust what comes. And so um, I really, really put all my intention to staying with that tradition and it's uh, it was really challenging at first, but um, I have the gift of gab. <laughs> so usually something comes out. <laughs> Hopefully it's useful. Um, yesterday morning I left Abayagiri at about 8.20 and I was um, I got a ride down to the bus to get down to the Santa Rosa airport. And um, I don't know, it was about 7.30, 7.40, Ajahn Yanako uh, came in to the office and he and Lumpur Pisano had just returned from Thailand on Tuesday. So they were, they're still landing after a three-week whirlwind tour. <laughs> um, but he came in to, to tell me that um, a Thai man that we've known um, I think he first started coming to Abayagiri. I must have been in about 2002, early 2002, so about 18 years ago. And the last time I saw him was in the spring. And I'm guessing he was probably in his late 40s. Um, does that sound right, Joe? Yeah. Probably about in his late 40s, so he was in his late 20s, maybe 30, when he first started coming to the monastery. And um, he was there in the spring. He came back from Thailand for a visit, and he'd had a stroke in Thailand, so he was using a cane. And then he left again, probably in June or something. And we got, so Ajahn Yanako came in to tell me that he had just heard that he had suffered a cerebral hemorrhage and was in the ICU in Thailand. And then when I got to Sekula's, um, I got a text, and then I was able to check my emails, and about our time, 6 p.m. Um, last night, he passed away. And so I was not really anticipating that I would talk about Joe, but um, he came up during my meditation because of a few things. But... Um, I was reflecting back to when I first met Joe, and at the time, Casa Serena was... Currently, Casa Serena is adjacent property to the monastery, and that's where the lay women come and stay when they're visiting. And at that time, it was still owned by our dear friend, Mary Curran, and she had... Um, 18 years ago... Uh, been diagnosed with uh, colon cancer. And I, her friends, she'd, she'd had a women's group with her. It's not exactly 18 years because it was a little bit, it was March or something when, when this happened. But um, her friends were there serendipitously for a, a women's circle. They'd been gathering regularly for about 17 years. So when she got this news, she had her dear, dear friends with her. But they all had lives to go back to, and my life was living at Abayagiri. And I did have a job, but I 
would work a day a week or something, and it was extremely flexible and, um, in town. So, and he was very, very good about giving me time when I needed it. And so, they asked me to come over, and they told me and about Mary's news, and then they um, asked if I would come and stay with her and take care of her. And I'd never done anything like that before, and um, I found it. Um, <laughs> quite a challenge, but um, also it was one of the most potent experiences of my life and really transformative. Uh, her sister would come and help out, and in that process, just it was such a heart-opening experience. And Mary was a... Um, she'd been a Catholic nun for 20 years, and um, she'd lived a very rich life, and it was such a gift for me to see how she was around this whole thing. And at some point in there, while I was with her, a Thai friend of ours, Dukata, brought Joe. And Joe had been living on the East Coast, and he'd had, I think he'd had some kind of diabetes, and he'd had some really bad luck with doctors, and he had some, his body was never in very good shape, I don't think. And so he had some vision problems. They'd done some surgery, and it didn't work out very well. So he wasn't. His vision was really awful when he came to the monastery, um, and he, he just had had some experiences that took him close to the realization um, and the fear of of his own death. And he asked if he could talk to Mary. And so I went to Mary and I said, there's this young man, he's, had some, he's got some really bad health issues, and he would really like to talk to you. <laughs> and Mary was like, okay. <laughs> and Joe came in, and Mary was just really grounded. Um, through what she, she had really come to an acceptance of what was going on, and she was, she was very grounded. And... Um, Joe asked her questions, and she was she was very caring and very gentle and very spacious with him. And for Joe, it was a very profound experience. And um, she was able to just really fully be with him. From and and he knew she was she was facing her last days, and that really gave him a lot of strength. And. Um, then Joe, that experience was so powerful for him, he made repeated trips. He ended up living in San Francisco, and the guy, really, his vision was really poor. I mean, he couldn't drive or anything because he was considered legally blind, but he managed, he was just so moved by this experience, he just wanted to go out and get things and bring them back to the monastery, and he'd come over while I was with Mary and he'd have this bag of groceries so that I'd have food to eat while I was there. And it's not like I was starving, but but it's just that um, he was had such gratitude in the way that that manifested as he just wanted to do something. He wanted to give something back. And I, I still remember Mary when, <laughs> when that first meeting with Joe and I was helping him because we had to lead him because his vision was so bad. I was leading him out of the room, and I looked back at her, and she just looked at me, and she kind of went. Because <laughs> she's like, well, I don't know. <laughs> and, um, but for Joe, it was very, very powerful for him. And he became a very regular visitor. His eyesight did improve. A couple years later, he did have to have a, a he got on the, on the list for a kidney transplant, and 
he was on dialysis and um, and one of the monks who was living at the monastery decided to uh, see if he, his kidney would be compatible and it was and so he got a monk's kidney which was another very for a Thai person to get a monk's kidney is <laughs> a very awesome thing <laughs> and it gave him many more years of, of health and um, I watched Joe grow over that time and he'd come and visit us regularly and just a lot of faith a lot of faith and um, he went back to be with family and I know that the person that I first met um, 17 years ago was very different than the person that I said goodbye to in the spring when he returned to Thailand very different about accepting where his body was, very, just uh, grown a tremendous amount. And that's how life is <laughs> with, with everything that we, we go through. We, um, we have experiences and, and they're new to us, especially when we're young. There's all kinds of new experiences and we face things that bring up a lot of fear, a lot of apprehension. And a lot of times, that's just our lack of experience. We really do like familiarity. Um, we don't like change, but as we know, uh, change is inevitable in, in everything. Um, we can never anticipate what any day is going to bring. Even though we, we begin the day and we think we know exactly what's going to happen because we have our schedule, but truthfully, we never know what actually, the day, what's going to unfold, how the day is going to unfold. And sometimes that's a bit disconcerting. And um, I just want to recognize that there's a group of people here on a Friday night sitting together in silence. And you probably have no idea how many people can't sit for two minutes because there's so much fear about holding still, about stopping. And yet... Everybody in this room has sat, and we may be at different levels of, of focus, of groundedness, of um, tonight may have been a really different sitting than other nights, but everybody is here and doing it. And um, it's a very beautiful thing because you never know what meditation is going to bring. You never know if you're gonna, how you're going to feel, how you're going to react. There's so many conditions that go on in a day that... that um, affect the way we receive things. And it can be very subtle sometimes. And yet, to take the time to sit, to be still, and to be with ourselves, it's very powerful. It's a very powerful experience, even if it seems like nothing is happening. And it's just the same old, same old. Couldn't stay with my breath, couldn't stay with the body sensations, kept thinking about this, whatever. Um, that's the common experience, really, that we share, is these minds are, we can help to tame them a little bit and to guide them, but we can't control what comes up. We can't control the thoughts that arise. And learning that is a, is a huge step in the process of develop, developing our practice and our meditation and how we take it into the world, which is every bit as important as um, how we are in this room. I was also reflecting on, um, I don't know, I was a college student at Humboldt State in Northern California, and um, I got a summer job as a 
wilderness ranger. <laughs> I talked about this on our recent retreat, but this is a different story. <laughs> um, and um, I remember thinking, gosh, I've been, I'm hiking, I'm hiking. Every week I was out there with a backpack, five days a week, and we never stayed in one spot. We always moved. And we'd had different routes that we'd do, and they would take us over passes, sometimes cross-country. Um, you know, it was always a different route. Sometimes we'd meet up with the people we were also part of our crew. and But most of the time we were on our own. And I used to think, gosh, I'm, I'm just always tired. Am I ever going to get used to this? Am I ever going to get in good shape where I don't get tired? And then one day I was doing one of the most... Um, challenging hikes because it, it was up a drainage called Stewart Fork and there's a, a ridge called Sawtooth and to go over it was just, I don't remember, it was some phenomenal number of switchbacks and it was also very exposed so you'd usually try to start before 10 in the morning or you, it would just get really hot up there and I remember going up, going up and I I, I was like having to stop and catch my breath which was okay because you could just turn around and there was this lovely view and but still thinking, gosh, you know, I'm just still, you'd think I'd get in shape. I'm doing this all the time, and I'm, I'm just having, I'm panting. And I met these two women, and part of my job was to interact with the people that we met out there. And just um, in my first year, it was still a primitive area. It hadn't been established as a wilderness area. And so we made sure people had permits because that documented the use. And that was really crucial for showing that this was really a prime spot to designate as a wilderness area. It was getting a lot of use by people. And so we would give out wilderness permits, and we would talk talk to them a little bit, not as a policing kind of way, but just a respectful way of being in that environment and just give them a, a few pointers about backcountry ethics. And um, So I was talking to these, I came up to these women, and they I, I had caught up to them. They were on this path, and you know, as I was talking, I was catching my breath, and and then one of them said, "Wow, you're in really good shape." And I was like, "Hi, I'm panting." And she said, "Yeah, but did you notice how fast you recovered?" And I thought, "Oh, no, I hadn't noticed." <laughs> and the point of my story is, we think we're not progressing in our practice. And oftentimes, it's too close to us that we can't see it. Sometimes we might have an experience that touches us deeply or lets us know we're really grounded. But then we can feel frustration because we can't repeat that experience at will. And I mean, maybe some people are very able to get their minds focused, but that's not my experience. Um, And so we think we're not actually getting anywhere but actually our recovery is really fast and we are noticing things more and we just forget to, to look at that. We forget to remember what it was like when we started off and, and allow ourselves to see what we're learning and to review what we're learning. Um, and it's a really, really fundamentally important part of our practice because we need we need to, to keep encouraging ourselves. Um, I know in the years at the monastery, I've, I hit points where it felt like I was just hit a plateau and nothing changed, and it felt grueling, and the, and the schedule there can be kind of grueling. It's, um, 
in the normal part of the year, I'm, uh, we have morning puja at 5, which means for me, I get up at 3.20 and gives me a chance to move, get myself together, get my walk over to the main part of the monastery. Um, and then I, by the time the meditation happens, I feel like I've at least woke up. <laughs> um, and, um, sometimes I'll have a tea bag or something and I can make tea, but often that's, that doesn't happen. So, um, And then through the course of the day, different, different things in our schedule. We have a work period and stuff. And then evening meditation is sometimes don't get back to your cabin until 9.30 or don't get to bed until 10, 10.30, and then 3 o'clock comes really fast again. <laughs> um, 3.30 comes really quick. But um, over the years, and, and over the years in that schedule, I've hit, I've, I have hit some plateaus where it doesn't feel like anything's shifting. I'm still getting really frustrated with people. I'm still getting impatient with people, um, irritated, working with metta, but I still... I remember one time spending a, a solitary retreat and I was working with metta and I was feeling a lot of metta actually. I, I, my heart was really, I was having the, the metta aroma, the feeling of metta. And I, was, I came out of retreat and I, uh, somebody met me in, on the road and I was talking to them and within two minutes I was feeling irritation. <laughs> Whereas for two weeks I was like, I love everybody. <laughs> And then um, I think something else down a little bit later, somebody else was, was talking to somebody else, and again, irritation. And I kind of was like, oh, yeah, this is why we live in community, because uh, we need these things to remind us that we're, we're on this path and we're, we're practicing, and this is where I know I need. Now I know, okay, yeah, I, I know what that feeling is like, but I still there's still work to do to bring that into my interactions with people so that I can catch myself sooner. So I don't, I mean, I, I really um, <laughs> had to deal in those early days with a lot of uh, frustrations, a lot of, in some ways I would say it's, uh, um, I undermine myself a lot. Um, and part of it was because of this perception that I had of myself and how I fit in there and how I didn't fit in there. And, um, we just have all kinds of things that we do that undermine ourselves, that hold ourselves back. And we forget that we really can do ourselves a service by just looking and remi- remembering how we were. Like, I, I, sometimes it would come up and I'd go, wow, you know, it's only like last year this situation would have happened and I probably would have bit that person's head off, figuratively speaking. <laughs> And I'm actually able to be patient and calm. And, and then over the years you realize, yeah, I might still get, I still get, feel the irritations, but they just don't have the hold they had, the same irritations, because I've seen them so many times. And I've stayed with the practice and I've worked with them and been willing to really look at them honestly and, and look at the experience honestly, look at my own um, where I hold back, where I feel fear, um, and what's holding me back. Um, and I, um, in that process, have learned. And I've had really patient teachers. That's another side of it. And a really uh, supportive group, really good friends along the path. Another thing that's really helpful. But we, get, we can get that feeling so often that it's um, nothing's changing, but when you really stop and take a look, 
you'll you'll actually you'll see there are changes. They may be subtle. We we always have these grand ideas about what might happen in our practice, and and especially in the early days. Um, I know I'm not alone because I <laughs> remember this one person um, in the early days when Ajahn Amaro was first coming and visiting for short periods, uh, three months of every year, just at the beginning of the Sangapala Foundation when we had this idea of starting a monastery. But most of the people that we knew at the time, you know, we're talking in the 80s, the late 80s, and most of the people at that time had a lot of experience with the Burmese tradition. Not very many people had experience with the Thai forest tradition. And so we started that process off by inviting a monk to come over. Lumpur Samedo picked Ajahn Amaro, and it was an excellent choice because he was so outgoing and gregarious and he could really relate to Americans. He's British, but he could really relate to Americans, and he actually loved it. But um, we had to figure out how to let people know he was here and how to introduce people to that tradition, the tradition where they don't handle money and they don't cook their own food and um, they live off the offerings that are provided by others. And so we just let a lot of sitting groups know and Ajahn Amaro um, would go to different sitting groups and we let people know if they wanted to offer a meal, they could. And people, it was a whole learning process. And it's hard to remember that because now we have this monastery and so, I mean, you, you come up here and everybody here knows what to do when a monk's, when a monk's here. You know, and, and uh, when we started, people didn't know that. I, um, people had very different backgrounds, and it's just really unfolded in a really beautiful way, and um, and is now a part of our. It's becoming a part of our culture in a way. It's definitely a part of our culture. <laughs> um, and what a gift that we have uh, these places, because this is where we get our support and our encouragement to keep going. This is where we can meet with like-minded people and have study groups to look at the suttas, to study them together, to add that to our uh, in information index that we can call on as we practice, and the encouragement. And um, I can't imagine a life without it. I, frankly, I, I um, have... Over the years, I mean, there's still a lot to learn. I still have a long way to go, but I look back and I feel like, um, I mean, 20 years ago, if somebody had told me I would be sitting in front of people and just sharing my experiences, and I would have, I would have been so terrorized. I would have. There's no way they could have talked me into doing this. <laughs> I would have just been a nervous wreck, and my voice would have been quivering and. I would have been probably close to tears. and um, I've really learned a lot just that um, I'm just in a room with people and I'm just sharing my experiences and um, hopefully <laughs> some of it's of use to people. But, um, yeah. Pause for a minute, see what else is, is arising around this theme that has come up. <laughs> I was always um, really just like to encourage people because it uh, doesn't matter what we do in life, where we go, we all 
share the challenges uh, just of living day to day, living with the politics that surround us, living with other people, people that are impatient in the course of our day. Um, I was finding um, Beth. I, some of you know Beth. She used to live at Abayagiri for about six years, and she's currently living, um, I think the area, it's called the Highlands, and it's I think it's just south of Sydney. And as you know, there's some pretty ravaging fires, um, pretty devastating fires going through that part of Australia. And so I've been in contact with her, and uh, I have felt a lot of sadness for the devastation. And also, I think, two years ago in Redwood Valley, we actually had to evacuate because of fires. And even not having fires biting at our heels, we didn't actually see the flames, but we had to leave for a week, and we couldn't go back, and we didn't know what would happen. That still has an effect. And so when I hear about people evacuating, I, 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 can, I, I can relate to being forced to leave your home and on very short notice. Um, and it bring, it's still, I can feel it in my body. There's a visceral feeling. And so I was talking to Beth and um, just kind of finding that I was feeling really sad. The, the nature's always been really important to me. And to see these changes, it had a profound, was having a profound effect. Um, and it's not anything to deny. It's 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 very honest reaction. And then just some of the other stuff that's going on. And I thought, you know, um, we have we always have a choice at every point when we we do any kind of action. We have a choice of how we're going to act. We don't always realize it, but we do. Um, and so I was reflecting on this and thinking. This, you know, there's no point in me letting myself feel sad. I mean, it's there, but I don't have to feed it. And people in this world, people are angry, they're upset, and people seem to have lost um, lost the sense of what truth is and and the value of truth in relating to other human beings. And but I don't have to let that bring up those kinds of feelings in me. I don't have to feel angry that people have, you know, let the environment get where they have, that they're denying it. I don't have to, it doesn't matter what people believe, but what I believe and how I behave, that I have control over. And so I was, I was really feeling like, okay, I really just want to be grounded, go into the world and keep myself in as grounded as a place as I can, and just be kind to people and recognize that people have difficulties and challenges and we don't always know what's going on in a person's life. And um, not, in the, not in the senses that I have something I can do to change their life, but just this is what I can do that's going to keep me more grounded, keep me in a space that I aspire to, to live in, that I aspire to towards being more of a time. So in a way, it's, it's really looking after my own heart. But um, hopefully it won't be adding any negative energies into the world. And, and that's not a small thing. <laughs> and, um, and then I, I, um, I get these emails from this group. Uh, 
of Oz, and um, they do a lot of international petitions to try to help people that are in trouble. And um, so I get email, I get emails from them regularly, and and then it was just like a day or two after I had kind of kind of regrouped myself and made this determination to really stay with that. And they had this. I, I'm never good at remembering these things, but they had these four points. And what they were sending out to all their uh, people who get their emails was basically it was along the same lines of what I was, what I had finally brought myself to. And it, and the first, like I remember the first one because I thought that's so important. And this isn't any kind of Buddhist organization or Christian organization. It's just human beings trying to make the world a better place. And the first one was. We all have them. We've got to watch our trigger points. And um, their encouragement was to watch what triggers you and know that other people have their own trigger points and they're different or different words, different scenarios can bring them up. But that's a, that's a condition that we all share. And the encouragement was you know, to, to be spacious, with, to recognize your trigger points and to not get sucked into them. And to have the space to recognize that people have different viewpoints, and it was—I wish I could remember the other four. They were very along the lines of what I was thinking, and I was kind of odd that it came within that close proximity of of me coming to that place and getting myself more grounded and and bringing my heart more into that space and making that aspiration and that commitment to really. Um, Pay it, paying attention to that to keep bringing myself back to that um, and it takes time for us to to develop those kinds of things and I'm sure there will be moments when I fail because um, I'm human <laughs> but then that remember that, that memory, that remembering that oh yeah when I walked up to that ridge and I thought I wasn't actually getting into any kind of shape and somebody had to point it out to me that yeah your recovery is fast yeah you get tired but your recovery is really fast and then we start looking at that in ourselves and that's that's the food that keeps us going that's the food for encouragement that keeps us staying with it even when we maybe say something that we're we regret within moments of it coming out um let me just reestablish our grounded. And that's what this sitting helps us to do, is to keep reestablishing our center, our presence. And we just sat for, I don't know, it was about 40, 45 minutes, and, and we're all capable of doing that. And sometimes we feel fear, we feel apprehension. That's going to be too much of a burden. I can't live like that. But you just take little steps. You take little things and you recognize that you're growing through those little steps. There was a, a teacher, um, and set your goals within reason. Uh, some of you probably heard he's no longer alive, but he used to work with death and dying, Stephen Levine. And he used to, I always loved this because it really just encapsulated it. He just said, you know, don't, when you, when you start, don't start with a 500-pound weight. Pick up the 5-pound weight and work with that for a while. So pick little things that help bring you back to that place, that help you to stay with your goals and know that you'll trip and know that you'll uh, 
we're all going to make mistakes, but we know those mistakes are very powerful teachers in themselves. Um, and we, we, we can learn. We're very, human beings are incredibly resilient. And um, we're all very strong, even though we feel like we can't deal with it. It's, it's uh, sometimes really surprising. One of our friends who she's, was in her 70s, she, she'd lost her husband about four years before, and, and she actually was in the fire. And um, she woke up and heard noise, looked out one window and saw this funny color in the sky. And then she went and looked out her other window, and there, there was a big slope, and it was coming down that slope. And she just had to get out. I mean, she had to leave in her bathrobes and her slippers. And I think she grabbed her purse, and then she had to figure out how to get her car out of the garage because there was no electricity by that time. And she managed to keep herself composed enough to remember that she could pull this thing on the garage door opener. And she got herself out, and then she had to start all over. Her house was completely burned down, and she had to start all over. And she's really steady with her practice. She and her husband moved from the Sacramento area to be near Abayagiri. And her husband, he didn't really come, but he was very supportive of her doing this, and they would listen to talks together. And he was supportive because he saw that she was really growing and benefiting. And um, she's remarkable. She's, um, I think she's about 76, 77. She still sits on the floor. <laughs> she's got me beat on that one. <laughs> and um, she just recently, I think it's been about two months, moved back into her house that finally was rebuilt. And, mm-hmm. and uh, Lumpur, in his um, very beautiful, supportive way, she had hoped that I would be would be there and could come and stay with her the first night because it was a big thing for her to go back to the area where her house had been and be in this new house and on her own. And I was I was away. I had other things that were going on, and I wasn't going to be in the area. And I mentioned it to Longpur, and so Longpur upped the ante, and he he contacted Sandra, and he said well, I think we'd like to come over the day that you move into your house, and it happens to be a moon observance night. So what I think we'd like to do is bring the whole community and we'll have chanting and meditation there. (laughs) And so that's what he did. (laughs) I saw photos. I wasn't able to be there. but um, And um, it was just, yeah, just uh, bringing the circumstances that support a very positive, in a positive way, uh, transition that was very fearful and, and, and kind of intimidating for her at the end of a very long road of um, having to completely redo it and build another house. And um, it was very, very lovely. She And she'll never forget that. And, um, and then, as it turned out, another friend showed up and, and uh, asked, can I stay in your house? So she had actually somebody stay there that night, too. And uh, it was very lovely. And um, it's all worked out. She's settled in really nicely. And, but it's that supportive community and that, um, yeah, just bringing forth those wholesome and skillful ways of being and other people coming together and doing that, bringing that out in each other. That's what we have to offer each other is the reminders. Remember to look at our own practice and... Um, yeah, just encourage each other to stay with it. 
and develop the skills that will take us to those wholesome states that really give us the support we need so that we can feel good about what we're doing because that's really important also, that we feel really happy with what we're doing. Happiness takes you a long way. And, um, and this kind of happiness is actually one that, that stays at some level. It stays, stays with us. Um, I think I'll leave it there. And um, I don't know if anybody has anything to add, anything to offer, any reflections that they've had or, or anything, but I'd really like to invite anybody if they have anything they want to say or any questions. Um, anyway, I'll just end it there. Thank you. Just reflecting on my own experiences in the past couple of days and how it's just been a very different kind of experience compared to what my life was like a decade ago. And um, it's really neat to see what kind of changes can happen over the course of time. Could everybody hear that? So uh, Nansky was just saying, he was just looking out over the last couple of days um, uh, how he's been experiencing things and realizing how different that is than how it was for him a decade ago and and how encouraged you are by that, just how wonderful it is to see that. Is that correct? Am I getting the motion correctly? <laughs> My memory is about this short. <laughs> Did I get that right? Okay. So, yeah, I mean, it's uh, just more encouragement. And I think sometimes, too, um, at the monastery, um, we have, it's not as much ritual as in a lot of forms, but we have our own form, our own types of ritual. And one is the lighting of the candles and the incense and the bowing. And um, before we give a talk, we, we do the chant. And um, I find that chant for me, and especially in the early days, and I would hear, uh, when I started giving talks, I would hear my voice quivering. But in the that's when I would remember. Charlotte was there one time, and she's like, how come Debbie didn't do the namotasa? And it's because I was so nervous I forgot. <laughs> but um, I find it's really, um, really helps bring, bring me together. It really helps me consolidate kind of my energy and um, kind of compose and just, and just from that place just kind of trust more what, what comes. So um, the rituals... Um, so for um, people come to the monastery a lot and they and they offer things and offerings for people relatives who've passed away or, or something and um and in the they'll bring food it's a really strong Thai tradition but now a lot of Westerners do it as well they'll come and offer food to the monks in honor of memory of someone who's passed and and we have these little vessels that come from Thailand there's little vessels with a kind of a thing that holds water and. When, like, the, the senior monk starts the chant at the mealtime, we pour the water, and it's very symbolic. It's, it, one thing, it helps you really focus, and you clarify what your intention and in offering the food was, and you're thinking about whoever it is you're sharing that um, goodness, that good merit, that good feeling with, and, and you're, you're holding them in that space. So it really helps you kind of bring that together. And... Um, and then often after the chant is over, we take the water and we pour it on something like a tree or a bush that we want to offer that water to. Um, so when I lit the incense, um, I brought Joe into my heart. And um, 
just uh, and then and then because I just was thinking, he he brought a lot of goodness. He brought a lot of people to the monastery, and um, it's just kind of that ripple, you know. He came and he got something that was really inspiring to him and helped him, and then he shared that with other people, and and he and he really um, began transforming his life and living more wholesomely and stuff. And so just uh, just sharing whatever comes from tonight, whatever goodness comes. I was kind of holding him in my heart to share that with him. And um, I find that really very powerful also. Uh, kind of gives a perspective on that sense of separation. But, um, yeah, is how we can hold that. And we hold people in our hearts. Anybody else have anything else to share? Or? You, um, I wonder if you could talk more about, uh, you talked about irritation coming up and then, and then using that. Can you talk more about that process that you were going through? When I do it now? <laughs> I mean, in the early days, it was just really, I mean, it's important because, in, like, in the early days, I just didn't have a handle on it, and the irritation was so strong, and it just took a foothold. And I had to go through a lot of periods of feeling a lot of regret and being open to feeling the regret. So rather than holding the anger, the irritation, and pointing at someone else, learning to actually turn it and look at what is it in myself that's, why am I letting that that situation take me to this place that I don't like. And in the early days at the monastery, I struggled a lot with it. Um, and a lot of it was, was fear-based for me and stuff. Just um, um, Anyway, whatever the reasons were, uh, I struggled with it a lot. And, and I didn't like it. I didn't want to feel it. And that almost just fed it because that led to tightening. And um, that almost encouraged that tightening and that kind of space. So I think over the years, number one is making the mistake and doing it again and starting to reflect on just first noticing how it felt afterwards. And then I would go through phases where I'd pay attention to that. And then I would work with it from the point of view of um, starting to see that my inability, if, it, if I had not been able to contain it, then it had been passed on to somebody else, and that didn't feel very beautiful either. Um, so reflecting on the impact that we have on other people by our own behavior. Uh, but a huge part of it is, that, uh, is actually being willing to turn it around and look at what is that taking responsibility for it. Because we'll forever be pointing at other people. There's always going to be something that's going to we're not going to like, we're going to be uncomfortable with. And so we can always be pointing at other people and blaming them. But actually, if we turn that to ourselves, then we can actually start doing something about it. Because we learn to be willing to look at it. We learn to soften. We learn. And it's really helpful, too, to remember that we are just like them. <laughs> like, I am just like you. And I like to feel happy. Other people want to feel happy. If somebody is irritated and, that, and they are irritated with me, that's very jarring. And I get very confused sometimes if I don't know where it's coming from. And so 
kind of just really t- looking at the whole picture and then learning to recognize what it was that got touched on. And also recognizing in the moments when there was more, I was already started off from a place of, I wasn't scattered, I was already more grounded and something might have happened that irritated me or somebody did something that I've told them a hundred times not to do. Um, but because I was already in a more grounded place, there was a more, the body wasn't so tight, there was a bit more space to, to be in with that. And that's really that really has helped me many times. And to reflect on that. Oh, so I, I had more space then. Um, I was able to just let it sit for a minute. It's the pause button is really useful, and it's really hard to find sometimes. But if you can pause and just keep yourself from that gut response that's going to come out, it makes a huge difference often. And it takes practice. And we may feel like we're not getting anywhere, but what I notice now is, I mean, because before I went to the monastery, I had the gall to to tell myself, and I remember telling other people, yeah, I don't know, I'm just not a very angry person. (laughs) And then I got to the monastery, and it was just like this little mini volcano came up because all the distractions were, were removed. I was living in community. There was no radio, no TV, no newspapers, no... Um, no eating at any time that I wanted to. Things were not in my control. And, I, and, and it was in a situation where that's pretty much in your face because you're in community and there's a certain routine and a certain way things are done. Things aren't in our control anyway, <laughs> but we can pretend that they are because we have our routines and stuff. But in that situation, it was baldly apparent to me that thing I didn't have control. And I was deferring to people who were senior and in a te- more of a teacher senior mode and um and because I was able to stick with it and really um in taking care of myself because i really I just felt so sad when I blew it i just and paying attention to that just wasn't a good feeling um and it, and just keep looking back and keep noticing when it when something that might have irritated you doesn't, and in this situation, you just have to keep turning things around, looking at them from different angles, and um, in the course of your day, you know, when you're when you're doing things, it's just very helpful because it helps us to understand more what the triggers are, what's what's behind that, and sometimes, um, like I, I was in the office, and I worked in the office, and I, I'm, you know, over the years taken on a lot of responsibilities and people are always coming in there. And um, I remember one time I I was fine. Somebody came in and I was like, okay, I can help them. They're interrupting me while I'm counting money or something, but I can I can do that. I can be pleasant. So I did that. Then it wasn't a couple of minutes later, somebody else came in with something and um, then I had to help them. And then the third time somebody came in, it was just like... <laughs> You know, it's, and it's just like I wasn't able to, to sustain the space. But that is something we develop over time is that ability to do that. It comes easier for some people than others. Some people just have cooler temperaments. But mine, once I got to the monastery, I realized, wow, there's a lot of heat. <laughs> and so then that's just where, that's just where I'm starting. That's just what I have to work with. If that's helpful, but just being really patience is incredibly valuable and necessary in this practice. And patience and not just, 
okay, I can do it and sometime it's going to get better. But actually patience where we just are like talking to ourselves and just going, okay, you didn't get it quite, quite like you wanted to that time, but it's okay. You're really working with it and keep going. You can do this. You can do that silently so people don't think you've lost it. <laughs> but I think we do have to give ourselves encouragement a lot of the time just to keep going. And then, and then the friends are really helpful. And other people's ideas, like having Kalyanamita, then you can share ideas and things that have helped. Or, or sometimes just having somebody you can talk about the situation that happened. And then you can learn to laugh. You start learning to laugh at some of this stuff. And part of the problem with that anger is you can't laugh at it. It's just, I went, that's something that changes a lot too. As you start these experiences, you start learning how to laugh at yourself and just the human condition. Um, and then you've also, I've also found that I'm, I can, I, I'm much more able to be with other people and whatever's going on. You know, and the, the, the hardest time I have still is with family <laughs> because, um, you know, they just know all the buttons. <laughs> And they're not trying to push him, but it's just there's this dynamic that's so embedded from years of knowing these people. And um, I, I actually I go down to my father's every month. He's going to be 93 soon, and I spend about a week or 10 days with him. And my sister comes um, once a week, and so she usually comes while I'm there. And she sometimes she's a really good-hearted person, but she has really high ideals, high expectations of herself and others. And I know it's herself. That's where it starts. And um, she was going on and on. Sometimes she gets stuck in these stories, and she can tell the same stories over and over. And we've talked about them so many times. And she was on a rant about something from the something political. And I tried to say something, and she wasn't listening to me. And I just, I just thought, yeah, I just don't want to deal with this right now. And I said, oh, you know what, I'm going to go upstairs. I'm going to go to bed. <laughs> and I left. And, um, and then I got upstairs and I brushed my teeth. And then I went, you know, that's really not how I want to end this night. And so I went back downstairs. And, um, and I said, look, I, I just want to say I love you. And I, it just was hard for me to hear you so upset. And I don't want to end the night like that. And then she started talking, but it has shifted for her. And then she told me of an experience that had really brought, invoked a lot of fear for her, and so she was having this anxiety. And that was really what the trigger was for her. But what it was manifesting is, is all this anger at everything else. And so it was just that me pausing, recollecting myself, and going back downstairs and saying, you know, I don't, wanna, I don't want it to be, I don't want to end it with this feeling like, She's still angry down there, and I've just said, I, you know, I'm going to bed. <laughs> and so it, it actually worked out well. But I can't expect that to happen every time. But, you know, it's, um, it's just time, practice, and we, we learn. We're learning all our lives. So, yeah, that's helpful. <laughs>